travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyberterrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning. Welcome to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, broadcasting from AM820 News, covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News, covering the Space Coast and Orlando. You can connect with us on our website at cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook and Twitter at Cybersec Radio, my personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, and via email, John Bambanek Radio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. We do take listener questions for our social media segment. We do uh, from time to time. So anything you want to know about cybersecurity, let us know, and we will cover it on the air. Uh, we also podcast a show, whatever your favorite podcasting software is. Uh, go ahead and find that uh, at Cybersecurity Today Radio. So want to jump right into it, right? Some of the biggest cybersecurity news uh, this past week. Uh, certainly this week, another missing uh, message scandal, this time uh, involving uh, officials with the Department of Justice and the FBI, uh, a couple of people who were involved with uh, various aspects of the Trump, uh, President Trump uh, and Russia investigations and the uh, Hillary Clinton email server investigations. Uh, until uh, late this week anyway, uh, it was five months worth of text messages uh, were missing. So uh, they were removed for some casework involving bias uh, against uh, the president. Uh, certainly if you're, uh, you're an investigator uh, or a lawyer uh, involved with a prosecution, there's certainly very important reasons why uh, you would need to be uh, independent and look at the evidence and where it tells you. So there's a big kind of emerging controversy there. Uh, you know, beginning of the week, you know, the president had tweeted out, uh, you know, blaming uh, Samsung for missing messages uh, that are germane to uh, congressional uh, investigation. And uh, I believe with the FBI uh, inspector general as well, uh, those have since turned up here late in the week. Uh, and it all kind of builds into this large memo about uh, uh, the use of FISA courts uh, in the 2016 election. Uh, FISA is uh, it, it's basically a secret court used by the United States government for investigations and wiretapping authority and the like involved with national security investigations and espionage. So uh, reportedly that court was used to obtain uh, surveillance powers over various uh, Trump campaign officials in the presidential cycle. So certainly there uh, seems to be a degree of controversy there. Congressional uh, leaders are working to declassify the memo so the public can see exactly what's in it. So, uh, you know, they suggest that that might be uh, in another week or two. So it'll be interesting. But ongoing fallout again from uh, the uh, election cycle, a lot of the cybersecurity issues that came up in this case, uh, missing emails. They did eventually turn up or were found uh, more accurately. Uh, but it does kind of parlay into something that I like reminding people of from time to time, right? Uh, we use our smartphones all the time for lots of things, right? There's text messages of iPhones and sharing stuff to the cloud. The amount of place data is replicated is, is staggering compared to even, say, 10 years ago. Uh, many phones by default will share your photos to various cloud sharing services, Uh those services may be private, you know, it's not like I could go into yours and see what's online, 
but other providers may have that content. And certainly, all right, the, the, a lot of the wealth of free mobile applications for your iPhone or your Android device, um, again, may capture a lot of information about you, store it in the cloud. And the reason that those are free is usually for uh, consumer ad tracking, get some information about you to make advertisers have better informed decisions about who to target for advertising. So a lot of what we face now in the digital age has to do with uh, all of these technologies collecting all sorts of data about us that we never would have thought of before. Certainly, I'm sure many people out there have seen various criminal investigations uh, that have been moved forward due to figuring out what people are searching for on Google, right? Uh, I'm old enough to remember controversy that uh, when law enforcement would show up to a public library and want to know what books you're checking out, librarians would uh, stand the wall and not comply with that. And there was a lot of uh, fighting to to the point where eventually, right, the libraries, in essence, I believe, more or less won that. If you know you uh, as an investigator want to see who's what people are checking out the library, uh, the libraries will often not cooperate. Here we are now in the modern age with Facebook and Twitter and uh, Google and all of these services where uh, they will cooperate. They'll get a national security letter or whatever to give information about uh, about you. So uh, while these text messages were lost for a little while, they can be replicated in other places and retrieved. So it's certainly, as somebody who investigates crime for a living uh, and, and does some of the work that I do, is very helpful for me. Uh, but it's definitely uh, something scary and you should be aware of is where exactly is your data going? Who has access to it? How can it be accessed? Uh, you know, it's accessible, uh, you know, in countries uh, with legal systems very different than our own. For instance, if there's data stored about you on a Chinese server, uh, it's a lot more accessible to the Chinese government. Uh, and that, like I said, it might be a concern for you. It might not be. Uh, it's up to you to decide your own particular stance when it comes to privacy. Uh, but a lot of these free apps, free services out there that you're seeing exist for collecting data about you to make advertisers more informed and in who they start uh, selling products to and displaying ads to. So uh, certainly a lot of uh, new and interesting ways that you can compromise your own privacy. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Another interesting article uh, that I saw, more of a, a social commentary, that uh, uh, the current generation of kids are more likely to be involved in hacking than they are to be in smoking. So uh, I, I don't know what the average age of people listening to the show is, but I can't imagine it's 20. So uh, I remember smoking being a thing when I was in high school. There's various spots on the high school campus where people would sneak off and uh, smoke cigarettes and the like. Certainly, that seems to be changing. I know with my uh, my 11-year-old uh, is very much into computer games. Uh, some of those are online multiplayer games. And I've had a lot of conversations with him because he's like, oh, I saw this where I can download this and get free, you know, free in-game currency or the ability to walk through walls or all that kind of stuff and I had to explain to him. Uh, you know, hey, odds are that those hacks that you're seeing online probably come with malware that's designed to compromise the computer. Uh, but certainly he's starting to get interested in at 11 of, of, uh, of hacking at least to try to get advantage of computer games anyway. So certainly, uh, you know, that's how technology has kind of shifted our culture. I know there's a lot of talk about 
how young people are uh, addicted to cell phones or certainly spending a lot of time on social media, how that's affecting uh, their interpersonal dynamics and, and their mindset. But certainly it's a very rapidly changing world. If you would have told me in the 90s or even 10 years ago uh, that kids in high school would be more likely to be involved in hacking. And, and, and that word, I, I should say hacking in the loose sense of the word, not the engaging in overt criminality, uh, but using technology in interesting ways, trying to find ways around problems or, uh, you know, and part of it may be involved cheating on computer games and the like, but, uh, you know, finding tools to uh, do interesting things with technology. That certainly seems to be in the mindset of kids. And I know there's lots of uh, efforts in high schools and colleges to um, to encourage this with hacker spaces or maker spaces and the like. So um, a lot of this push in uh, getting young people involved with STEM uh, interests certainly seems to be paying off in terms of how uh, they're they're applying their time, right? Less in terms of, of smoking and other vices, more in terms of technology and trying to do uh, interesting things with it. So uh, certainly uh, interesting social commentary. So go ahead and check that out online uh, if you're interested in it. We're going to take a short break here. We're going to bring on Chris Bing from our digital partner, cyberscoop.com, to talk about what they're covering and some of the news here in the past week uh, that caught their attention in terms of cybersecurity policy and some other things going on. So stay tuned for that. We're going to take a short break right here and be right back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanek will be right back. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now from our digital partner, cyberscoop.com, is Chris Bing. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thanks, John, for having me. All right. So wanted to jump right into it. Uh, Facebook made in the hire uh, of a former uh, Obama administration official, Nathaniel uh, Gleischer, uh, to head up cybersecurity policy. It's a new role that they have for them, but uh, you know, many organizations are trying to figure out how uh, policy impacts your organizations, what they should put in place. So uh, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about this and what do you think it means for Facebook? So I think it's definitely a sign of the times, right? As you rightfully mentioned, Facebook is not the first organization to hire a sort of policy expert when it pertains to cybersecurity. And for Facebook, this hire follows um, a public commitment that they've made multiple times saying that they plan to invest increasingly invest in security and in people to make sure that their platform is essentially more secure and also is less polluted with fake news and uh, propaganda. And so mm -hmm. um, I, think, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, Nathaniel previously uh, worked in the Obama administration as a policy director at the White House. He has a lot of experience. I'm sure he still has good contacts back in D.C., it's uh, most most of all, it just goes to show where we're at today, where tech companies need to have, or at least they think they need to have policy experts as they um, head down this road and continue to navigate all the all the confusing and at times mm -hmm. challenging laws associated with cybersecurity, or or often conflicting. Right, Facebook is a global company that's 
available almost everywhere in the world. I think China is probably the sole exception, or at least one of the few. I think it's still blocked there, but if, if you want to do business all over the world, it's not just the U.S. laws that you have to contend with, it's the rest of them, and sometimes they're in conflict. So uh, certainly, I, I think I was making a joke to a colleague five years ago with all these regulations that get passed and laws, you know, it's like, do we all have to become lawyers now instead of technology professionals? Because uh, certainly, right? You, know, you, you you talk about the one big thing everybody's talking about in social media and policy is what to do about fake news and uh, to what extent we regulate it or uh, deal with political speech on social media to uh, keep some of these propaganda pieces, uh, foreign-inspired propaganda pieces, I should be should be clarified. We have plenty of homegrown propaganda out there uh, from uh, taking hold of the public opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a very good point. Um, you know, Facebook is... is uh, ch- is challenged by a number of, of different initiatives right now. And then Washington, especially over the last six months, has been pressuring all the social media companies to essentially do a better job of um, protecting their own domain from this sort of, these sort of malicious uh, propaganda and fake news, as well as um, all these platforms are often used as phishing platforms to share mm-hmm. malicious links, or to share uh, other sort of malicious content where if you click it, then uh, the system can become compromised or download malware or something along those lines. So, um, you know, just uh, sort of another chapter in the story, but for Facebook, it's a prominent hire. And to me, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I think so. And certainly Facebook, yeah, Facebook and Twitter is ground zero for uh, some of the fights on, on propaganda. But yeah, there's lots of other threats out there. Um, you know, uh, of spam links and catfishing and, and the related stuff. So uh, it, it wasn't part of your article or story, but I saw it uh, a day or two ago. Alex Stamos, the chief security officer of uh, Facebook, uh, published that Facebook is uh, trying to award academic grants for upwards of 100000 for, uh, you know, researchers and others to develop tools and techniques to protect their platform also. So uh, it's another way they're uh, they're doing the same thing, right? You know, in that case, it's it's working with academia yeah. to solve uh, solve hard problems. Uh, you know, and in this uh, this latest hire, working with uh, ultimately somebody who probably interface can interface at a high level to deal with some of the policy problems and challenges uh, in this current environment. Yeah, the the, um, the grant uh, program that you mentioned is is definitely very interesting. We we looked at that as well, and. Um, so to my understanding, the way the grant program will work is basically people can submit research and then Facebook will provide, will award grants some of those teams and work with them to essentially develop whatever solution they're pitching within their research. And um, the awards, just for reference, will be occurring at Black Hat later this year. So mm-hmm. if any of the listeners are at Black Hat this year, um, you will get some news about who is given these grants by Facebook. So uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bam, and I wanted to segue into another story uh, that you guys were covering over on cyberscoop.com uh, with Raytheon and the Cybersecurity Flight Simulator. Uh, tell us about, about that, what it is, and, and uh, what our uh, intelligence agencies are doing to protect our critical infrastructure. 
the the military primarily uh, for Cyber Command has been exploring a number of different options for training tools and techniques and um, you know the at the moment Cyber Command is really gearing up in terms of building its forces uh, for what it calls its, its next generation of so-called cyber warriors and so uh, the the military has been thinking about okay well how do we train these people how do we get them to a point where they can be effective. And one of the ways that um, they, they've talked about it is having some sort of virtual training environment that offers, um, you know, connectivity to bring together people from various different military bases across the country and across the world for educational purposes, but also for, for planning purposes, um, for operations or missions. And, uh, next week, um, the, the Pentagon will be hosting a second industry day for one of these programs. Uh, so they're, they're con- the industry day means that they're considering putting out a contract for it. And it's a, it's a program called the Persistent Cyber Training Exercise. Mm-hmm. And um, a bunch of big defense contractors have been like building products to then try and pitch to uh, to the military for this thing, and we got an opportunity to test out one of these demos, which are going to be pitched to the government next week. And it was one developed by Raytheon, and it was pretty wild. It was um, a virtual reality like in environment and exercise where you put on an HTC Vive, which is one of the more popular um, virtual reality headsets nowadays. Mm-hmm. You were essentially exploring and walking around a what almost looked like a Star Wars type battleship, <laughs> <laughs> where you did like various different training exercises. And the one that we saw was um, like watching as a DDoS happened, which affected a drone that was then communicating with like ground support, including tanks on the ground. And so that there was sort of like a, a lesson around how. Um, like where the DDoS had came from and like what in the code from the DDoS showed where it was coming from. Thank you, Chris Bing, for being on the show from our digital partner, cyberscoop.com. Thanks, John. All right, stay tuned. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. You're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Some great information there from Chris Bing and cyberscoop.com and some of the other uh, stories that they're covering. But wanted to cover a couple uh, of additional things, of uh, things that I thought uh, might be interesting, uh, one of which I have a personal anecdote with. Uh, the first story uh, is that a security company uh, based out of Israel uh, found some security vulnerabilities in Tinder. If you don't know, Tinder is a uh, mobile dating app. It allows you to swipe pictures left or right depending on if the profile is uh, somebody that interests you. Uh, a lot of uh, younger people, I don't know, maybe older people, 
uh, are using this uh, to find people uh, near you that they'd be interested in meeting. Uh, you know, it certainly had a great impact on how people are meeting and dating each other uh, here now with with all of these tools. So this company, Checkmarks, found that uh, the applications lack some basic encryption settings that would allow people to uh, take over accounts, swap out pictures for things that might be uh, less appropriate, put in malicious content or advertising or, or whatever. Uh, certainly, you know, uh, anybody who's used Tinder, uh, you know, it's reportedly been said, you know, there's a lot of bots or automated accounts that are really just trying to trick you into pornography subscriptions and the like. But... Uh, you know, I do know some people who, who swear by it and use the system themselves and seem perfectly happy with the results. But uh, this vulnerability, right, allows uh, people to uh, maliciously manipulate profiles. Uh, the, the personal anecdote is, is part of my courses that I teach at the University of Illinois, particularly the digital forensics ones, is, uh, you know, allow them to, hey, see what you can come and what evidence you can find uh, on these various mobile applications and pick something. And I had a student pick uh, Tinder to see what information could be retrieved. And they found if you're able to get a, a user ID for somebody, you would be able to access uh, their lists of who they swipe left and right, so what they're interested in, you know, potentially some other content uh, stored on the site, their profile, and so on and so forth. So uh, a lot of particularly sensitive information is stored there. Um, you know, I met uh, some people of the security team uh, at Tinder uh, at a conference to, accidentally with just a chance encounter and talked to them about it. So, um, you know, but... For them, it's by design. It's the the system works the way it does, now, and certainly it exposes, no pun intended, a fair bit of information about the users uh, that use the system, right? You know, including you know, like I said their their swipe left or swipe right preferences. So uh, certainly, when uh, you start talking about services that cater to this in terms of uh, of dating apps and the like, you tend to get an entirely new genre of sensitive information that needs be uh, needs to be protected. A couple of years ago, uh, a website called Ashley Madison, which was uh, a site that's motto is life is short, have an affair. Uh, their entire database was stolen, and that has all sorts of additional salacious information. Uh, you know, spouses were able to see if, you know, their uh, partners were on Ashley Madison looking for uh, others and, you know, created all sorts of problems when that was breached. Uh, you know, reportedly a couple of people committed suicide because they're exposed as being users uh, of this platform. So um, I don't know what in a way I have uh, in advice for people who use these systems aside of being aside of saying, be careful what you put out there. Uh, you know, what you uh, project about yourself. Be aware that uh, these databases and these systems uh, have to store data by design uh, in places and they uh, may lose that data. That may, data may get breached. And, you know, unlike credit card information or whatever, uh, there's not much in the way of identity theft protection that can help you in a situation when you're talking about a breach of a dating app. So, uh, be wary of that. Certainly, there's a lot of uh, scams out there. There's a genre of scams called catfishing where uh, usually targets men, you know, pretend to carry on a, a digital relationship in the attempt to uh, get compromising content and then blackmail the individual saying, oh, by the way, if you don't give me $5,000, I will send, you know, these pictures or these texts to your wife or so on and so forth. And uh, you know, I know on Facebook, I see, I don't know, about a half dozen to a dozen, um, pretty obvious catfishing accounts, uh, a week, 
that I usually report to, to get blocked. So uh, certainly, you know, uh, be careful. You know, anybody can upload a picture and pretend to be anybody else on the Internet. We haven't really solved uh, truly authenticating people. So uh, be wary that uh, the information you're being presented is accurate. That's uh, not somebody trying to take advantage of you, so on and so forth. So uh, and certainly, right, you know, be aware of where your data goes. The more sensitive the data, the more scrutiny that uh, you should uh, give to the provider that's holding it. So if you're just tuning in, this is Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Another story. Uh, this one actually is from cyberscoop.com, also uh, publishing some research about uh, Bitcoin, about uh, some of the growth in cryptocurrency and things happening on the dark web. Is that uh, early on, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Bitcoin transactions uh, were heavily in terms of, of criminal activity, right? Ransomware, people buying drugs off the dark web, so on and so forth. Uh, criminals buying services or exchanging goods with one another. Uh, and uh, before 2017, uh, there was uh, a large portion of Bitcoin traffic that was there. Uh, before that point, about 14% of all cryptocurrency uh, value was stolen by others with exchanges being robbed uh, and uh, things of that sort. So uh, Mt. Gox being one of the largest at the time, uh, the loss in today's dollars is in the billions. Uh, there was an exchange we talked about on the show uh, about a month ago in South Korea uh, that filed for bankruptcy because a large portion of their uh, reserves, I believe 25%, was stolen. So as we get here into into the new year, right? There's been a lot of interest in cryptocurrency. Many of you may have potentially be invested in in some way, shape, or form. So certainly the dynamics is changing to a great deal, uh, which has created some problems for criminals. Uh, which is the interesting part of the story is uh, Bitcoin uh, has transaction fees. So if you're doing small transactions now, uh, those fees can make up a large portion of uh, what you're actually spending your money on. And some of these problems have created problems for criminals as well. I know I've talked on the show of some of the Bitcoin surveillance I do, uh, you know, neo-Nazi transactions whenever somebody donates money to a, a known neo-Nazi Bitcoin wallet or one of them spends money. I have a Twitter bot at neo-Nazi wallets that publishes it. Uh, but certainly criminals in general know that this kind of thing is possible and they're moving to other currencies in part because of some of the architectural problems of Bitcoin and in part not wanting uh, investigators like myself being able to see what they're doing. Uh, one of the currencies they're using is something called Monero, uh, which I believe I've also mentioned before, which which gives transaction privacy, right? If, uh, I mean, you still have wallets, you could still send, you know, Monero from one place to another, uh, but there's no good way to say, oh, this wallet exchanged this much Monero with that wallet. Uh, it's all encrypted. Uh, we haven't really found a good method to deal with that problem. And so the criminals are, are flocking to that in a great, uh, in a good way. Um, so uh, there has also been a couple of new exchanges that are trading in Monero. Uh, so it's becoming more and more accessible to criminals and others to use some of these exchanges to uh, do uh, transactions in Monero instead of Bitcoin. So once we go into that world, uh, a lot of our investigative techniques and ways that we track some of these criminals uh, is going to become much more difficult. Uh, and as of right now, we don't have a really good solution for that. So, uh, you know, if you're invested in Bitcoin, I don't know what this tells you in terms of what you do going forward, you know, but criminals are, are, are leaving that platform 
to Monero and to those that have transaction privacy. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays with the values of these various cryptocurrencies here in the coming days and weeks ahead. So more on that as uh, we go forward, as there's news to report on that. So some very interesting uh, research there. You can go ahead to cyberscoop.com and check it out. Uh, the company that uh, they interviewed was called Chainalysis, which does some Bitcoin tracking software available to investigators. So I'm going to take a short break here before we go into our final segment here on Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. So stay tuned for more. We will be right back here after this short break. Stay tuned for more from Bambanek on Cybersecurity. is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And welcome back. You've tuned in to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, for our last segment here of this hour on Saturday morning. So covering a couple of other things, this time to Southeast Asia. And I'll tie to it uh, why it actually matters here is shortly. Uh, study out uh, that you'll find uh, on CNBC, other news outlets talking about Southeast Asia and how they're not investing enough in cybersecurity uh, for the stuff that they're putting online, how there really needs to be more investment in securing their infrastructure, their organizations, and their consumers. Um, you know, so uh, certainly in the United States, a lot of money is being spent on, on cybersecurity. I believe the last number I heard is generally we spend about 20% more every year. So certainly well above the rate of inflation also, and uh, certainly I know some of the salaries people can command and uh, dollar amounts people are willing to pay for, for products, at least in the business space. Uh, but when you go into Southeast Asia and in that part of the world, uh, it seems they're not uh, spending enough for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, I mean, part of that is uh, certainly uh, a preference for uh, having some local talent uh, in organizations uh, and, uh, you know, limited resources, any number of things. So certainly, you know, countries like uh, China have some resources, but you get into to others like Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, and the story uh, can vary greatly. Why this matters and why this is important to Americans is uh, in the Internet age, right, every place on the Internet more or less can talk to every other place. About 14 months ago, 13, 14 months ago, you may remember that Twitter went down over a big denial of service attack uh, as part of a botnet called Mirai. Uh, these uh, had a bunch of vulnerable devices, Internet of Things devices, DVRs, webcams that had a uh, default username and password, the same six-digit uh, string that attackers are able to then just log in remotely on the Internet, take over the device, and then start launching attacks from them. Uh, for Mirai in particular, that we saw a, a large share of those devices uh, were based in uh, Southeast Asia and the Asia region generally. Uh, there's a wide variety of reasons uh, of why that's so, but it just so happened uh, it was made by a Chinese manufacturer. But uh, in that part of the world, things tend to not be as uh, behind firewalls and uh, devices called NATs. 
uh, as much as we would find here in the United States. Because those devices were accessible to the Internet, then you were able to uh, access them, log into them, and use that to launch attacks. And you had enough of them so that those attacks would be very damaging. Uh, the target wasn't, uh, at least in the case of Mirai, wasn't in Asia. The target was us here in the United States. So people can use these devices that are compromised in other parts of the world because they're not spending enough or doing enough to secure their networks and then take over those devices, use those resources to attack us. Uh, there's a large, uh, obviously, possibility of that, but uh, denial of service, right, is knocking websites or other services online. If you point those at the, those kind of attacks at the right places, you can have a real outsized impact in terms of the effect that you have on uh, the functioning of a society. Uh, as an example of what it would look like, uh, what generally people consider the first example of a cyber war involved the country uh, Estonia, uh, a smaller country, uh, part of the former USSR, uh, got into a conflict with the Russian government. Uh, but one of the interesting things about Estonia is, uh, even years ago, they were a very digital economy. They did everything online. You know, if you wanted to park, the parking meters, you'd do it with your mobile phone. Uh, so by and large, people were doing things digitally and electronically. They have smart cards for, uh, you know, uh, national IDs uh, and the like. So when denial of services attacked, right, the people behind that pointed in the explicit explicitly at some of those critical services that allows for the orderly functioning of society, right? So people didn't know how to pay for parking meters, right? It's it's not like they had other resources or had loose change uh, in them. I, I'm not entirely sure the parking meters even took coins anyway. Uh, so it had uh, a large impact. So having a lot of these vulnerable devices in another part of the world can be used to attack us. It actually becomes a, a great security risk. And we've seen this happen uh, again and again in a lot of ways, not just in Estonia, certainly with Twitter. Uh, it flares up, you know, from time to time, and, you know, and then it's silent for long uh, periods of time. But certainly uh, it's, it's a big concern, but it's also a big concern to us, uh, you know. Uh, but it also goes into how it's important for you and your technology to make sure you're keeping things updated so that people can't use those to negatively impact others. So if you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Uh, last item of the day that I uh, wanted to cover, you know, the past uh, few days, uh, there's a gathering of world elite at, in, in Davos. Uh, the president was there, several others were there, uh, you know, people get together. I believe it's on an annual basis. Uh, you know, CEOs, government leaders, uh, you know, the cognizanti, so to speak, uh, get together to talk about world problems, things uh, of interest to them, how they can make the world a better place, right? A wide variety of topics are discussed. This year, um, and I don't believe this is true any other previous years at all, really, uh, cybersecurity was a, a topic of conversation with them for, for world leaders and business leaders uh, and some of the risks that are coming up. So first, uh, it shows how much this issue is growing in prominence and growing in concern uh, with the advent of things like ransomware, entire organizations uh, can be taken offline. And we saw that with WannaCry and NotPetya and BadRabbit, uh, about three major incidents in the last year where ransomware tools were used not to gain money, 
but to take entire organizations offline. I know FedEx wrote, wrote off like 300 million in losses over, over WannaCry and not Petra, I believe, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. So here you've got this gathering of, uh, of billionaires and uh, world leaders and the political elite, uh, and they're talking about what are we going to do about this cybersecurity problem, right? And to an extent, it, it's not like there aren't different problems than uh, we've been talking about an in industry for years or that you may have heard on this show from time to time. But certainly, how do we work around national boundaries? Uh, the Internet is a global resource. Uh, so uh, from time to time, you know, uh, you know, there might be a need for getting information between one country and another, right? You know, as an investigator, uh, getting law enforcement to cooperate between various countries can be a challenge, even even when they're allied. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about norms of behavior and what's fair game in terms of uh, nation-state activity. Uh, we've seen a lot of reporting, and, and certainly we've had conversations here on this show in the past few weeks about uh, attacks and probing and vulnerabilities of power grids and power infrastructure where if there was an actual disruption it would disproportionately affect uh, civilian population there's been a lot of conversations uh, about how uh, what that means for international norms and how people respond so uh, certainly it's become a very huge business issue uh, we saw the Equifax breach last year where three executives uh, were cashiered because 144 million um, Americans and you know many many others not in the U.S. their data was lost. Uh, there's a, a lot of conversation of conflicts of law that uh, an internet governance that the uh, United States has a very different set of laws and approach to privacy than Europe and uh, GDPR which is coming into effect uh, which is going to have a disproportionate share on on how the internet is run. Uh, and those kind of issues are, are talked about and, and briefly, right, is uh, it's public record of who owns a domain name, right? You know, there's an email address, there's a phone number, there's your name, uh, and it helps you as a consumer verify, hey, this website that says it's Microsoft.com and wants me to update my computer, it's actually owned by Microsoft. Okay. Uh, you can, of course, get privacy if you want to to enable that so it's, oh, it's hidden. Uh, but under European law, uh, their governments are saying that this is a privacy risk, that investigators can no longer have this information absent the court order, and that's going to affect uh, the Internet as a whole, right? This, this resource is important for blocking spam uh, and protecting against malware, to protect against the privacy risks that come with hacking, right? So there's a lot of conflicts of this sort uh, that are being brought up, a lot of problems that have gone unresolved for years, if not decades, uh, and now it's being seen at a very high level. Uh, as far as I know, I never uh, five years ago would have thought it would have been a conversation at uh, uh, Davos, but uh, Davos, but uh, here we are, right? But that brings us to the end of our show. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Got a lot of information uh, out of our content. Uh, always feel free to reach us out. Uh, reach out to us to let us know if there's more that you want to hear or something different uh, at cybersecuritytodayradio.com or on Facebook and Twitter at CyberSecRadio. So we're going to call it a week. I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend and you join us here again next Saturday for Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Have a great weekend.